The system itself optimizes the economic interest of the broadest number of adults in the system. It's not the proper governance for this 21st century system. Give people a positive message, ask people to care about their fellow citizens, their neighbors, and let's get back to working. Because the social costs, the mental health costs, the family costs of being quarantined and the loss of jobs now that could be permanent if it continues on is so devastating. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moe. This week we're catching up with our good friend, former Florida governor and education advocate Jeb Bush. It's been over 10 years since he served in public office, but everybody knows his impact as governor has long lasted after his term. Great to be with you, Jeb. How are you doing, Michael? Good to see you. So why don't we kick things off? You know, you've obviously, your family is one of the storied families in really American history. What was it like to grow up as a Bush, how has your family really influenced you and how did your education influence you? You know, um, certainly my mom and dad were the greatest influences like any family that's, uh, any parents that are focused on their children's upbringing, they, they have an influence, hopefully good, sometimes bad. In my case, what a blessing to be Barbara Bush's boy. Um, a, I learned, uh, I learned how to read really early because she taught me how to read by reading to me when I was a, from the earliest age. Um, it, it enhanced my imagination. It made me curious. All the things that you would want a young person to have started first and foremost with my mother being my first teacher. And I'd say my dad is the greatest man I've ever met, not, not because he was president, just because of his integrity and just the life he lived. And it, you know, Having a role model like that, Michael, on one level, it was a little little difficult because I knew I never could get close to him. So a lot of you know a lot of children of accomplished people sometimes probably get in the fetal position and go in the closet and don't come out. I just you know what I did? I just realized like at the age of twenty two, I was already married and I was thinking about this one day and I said, you know, I think I my goal ought to be to be half the man George H W Bush was. Wow. And that made it a little simpler for me to uh, strive to live a purposeful life. But growing up um, in, in my family was an incredible blessing. In fact, if a fairy godmother would land on my shoulder, and they don't do that anymore, but if they did, uh, and ask me for anything that I could want, I would want wholesome, loving family life to be the organizing principle for all, all kids. Because gosh, I mean, we're here to talk about education. Could you imagine if parents were stable, they had a purposeful life, they didn't have big challenges around them, and they could organize themselves around their children's education the way I got to have it. I mean, our country would be so far ahead of where we are today. And that is largely something that you see more and more where there are great schools that reflect the values of the community. So I think it's all connected. You know, your amazing family history, uh, governor, your own history in public service that so many people are familiar with, as you were just talking about. But only people, it's not only people, there's so many people that know about your incredible and extensive work in education, but um, not as many as we'd like. 
Um, so let's help uh, start there because I think that we're constantly reminding people um, what a miracle in a way the Florida story was. You had some of the worst schools in the nation and during your, during your two terms, you really revolutionized um, the schools. What, what happened? Tell, tell us the story in your own words because I don't know unless you go to an education conference um, how many times people think yeah. about that. Well, my, my interest in education started uh, long before that. Uh, when I was Secretary of Commerce, I traveled the state in 1987. The number one issue in Florida for recruiting businesses, which was my job, was education. The public education system was not considered uh, up to a level that could recruit executives or workers to the state. Um, I got involved in the school choice movement. In fact, in I think 1990, Tom Feeney and I founded uh, Floridians for Educational Choice with a woman named Billy Neese. We had Polly Williams come down to a barbecue in, in uh, Lee County to kick it off. And I've always believed that parents should have the power of choice, public and private, um, that that's the proper uh, thing to do, that you'll get better outcomes. And then as a candidate in 94 and certainly in 98, I laid out a plan for more robust accountability. And lo and behold, I won, you know, which back then in politics, it's kind of a foreign concept now, but if you, you know, if you did what you said you were going to do, you had a better chance of actually doing it. And so the campaign wasn't so much about how bad the other guy was, it was about my ideas. He thought the ideas were horrible and I kind of claimed a mandate. And I don't know if it was the reason why I won, but it was certainly the number one issue. And uh, the convergence of a freshly minted Republican conservative from Miami governor, with the first time ever in, in Florida's history, a, a conservative legislature wanting to wanting to show that we could do things together, wanting to make me look good, thankfully, um, allowed us to pass a pretty comprehensive suite of reforms. And then we went on the journey of, of executing it. It's really hard. Uh, sometimes there's a check the box mentality in policy making. You pass a law and you move on to the next thing. And this is hard work because, you know, in our case, we had 67 school districts with 67 bureaucracies with 67 school unions, all of which opposed everything that we proposed. All of it. They put not just one part, they opposed accountability, choice, ending social promotion. And so it was a constant struggle to persuade people who may have been less fervent in their opposition to join, you know, to join our cause and to uh, um, for those that never were going to change to fight. And so um, it, it was fun, actually. It was, it was a blast doing it. And thankfully, the NAEP scores were kind of the benchmark, still are, still are I think, of how, school, how states do. And I would pray the rosary the night before the NAEP scores would come out, you know, praying that we would get results. And thankfully, the first two iterations of those NAEP scores, we just, we went through the, the ceiling. And it kind of, it, and then, and then the other thing that would be important was we created constituencies for choice. We proved accountability worked, and then there were enough parents whose children were going to a private school or going to a charter school or a kid that with a learning disability could go to a special needs place. All of that uh, created a constituency, and that began to protect these reforms and make them more sustainable. Yeah, I don't think I'm overstating this. And you, as a as a leader uh, in Florida, 
transform Florida for the better forever. I want to go back though. Um, you know, obviously your family's originally from New England. You grew up in Texas, and you, um, but you went to Florida. What attracted you to Florida originally? Yeah. How has it changed besides everybody from California moving there? <laughs> we have some New Yorkers too. Yeah. Um, it's changed a lot, uh, but my motivation to come is is um, uh, not the one that you would think. It wasn't planned out. I uh, didn't get a PowerPoint. Actually, PowerPoints didn't exist back then, but I fell in love with my wife first and foremost. I mean, madly in love at the age of 17. And um, my, my whole life began to be organized immediately on how I could convince her to marry me, which took three and a half years, but I just turned 21. She was 20. We got married. I got out of University of Texas in two years. I started to work, went to Venezuela, came back, at the age of 26, and uh, my dad's election took place with President Reagan, and I had a choice. I could stay in Houston, I could go some other place, and I didn't feel, believe it or not, Houston was a was a welcoming place in 1981 for my multi, my children didn't speak English. They, My two oldest, one is now the land commissioner in the state of Texas, he, he didn't speak English when he was three, he spoke Spanish. and. And in retrospect, Houston now is one of the most international, global cities, welcoming in every way. But back then, I just felt like it wasn't. And the other, so that was a good reason, I think, to move to Miami, which was more welcoming for my my little family. And the second reason was a stupid one, which was I wanted to get out from my dad's shadow. But the, the shadow didn't end at Harris County Line, you know, in Houston. So I don't know. Sometimes someone needs, you need a mentor to tell you, don't be an idiot. Uh, that's not a good reason, but it turned out great. Um, you know, Miami and first I, I chose Miami, not Florida. And then I fell in love with Florida. Um, and it's, it's changed dramatically because it's gotten scale. Uh, it's diversified its economy. It's a state now that focuses uh, on the longer term things a little better than most states. And we manage the short term things better than most states. So we don't have structural deficits. Our pension fund is funded. We actually build roads here and, you know, if schools need to be built, we figure out ways to do that. And we don't try to punish the the folks that uh, create the opportunity. So it's a good model. It works pretty well. And uh, it's nice to see how it's developed. Now, Michael, the big challenge is with all these newcomers coming in, are they going to tell us how they used to do it back in the old place, which yeah. wasn't so good? <laughs> That's my worry. Right. Yeah. Oh no. Exactly. You have to you have to protect that uh, that DNA that helped it. You know, um, you mentioned your children, and um, they weren't English speakers. And you're in a state that you adore that is so diverse. And you know, you and I have toured and um, been in rooms with and saluted so many of the founders of the charter schools and the educational choice programs that are serving this incredible array of immigrant and migrant children and diversity, and they're doing phenomenally well. And yet we still have these huge gaps. Other places where kids aren't having that education. So a lot of people want to say, and this kind of goes into the political world too, Jeb, but a lot of people want to say, oh, well, that's because they had this disadvantage. And it's going to be take years and generations for them to keep up. But you didn't say that. And so help everybody understand how education really does 
change lives from the perspective of your... I mean, this is the critical, particularly K-12, um, high lofty expectations, irrespective of one uh, the color of a child's skin or whether they have a vowel at the end of their name or they speak with an accent or where they come from. Uh, you have to have it for everybody. And if you start with the premise that God's given every child the ability to reach their God-given abilities, they're, they're, they're varying, but they're there. Uh, and you have high lofty expectations, you're going to get it. You know, if you have a bar that's this high and you have strategies to make sure people can get over the bar, you're going to get better results than saying that some kids can learn and some kids can't. So an, an, a Hispanic population in Florida is a pretty good example of that. We have lots of newly arrived. In Florida, uh, prior to me being governor, there was a strategy to take a longer time for what are called LEP students, limited English proficient students, to begin to take English, all their courses in English. And we we changed it to a year. And um, I don't know what it is today. My guess is it's probably, hopefully it's still the same or less. Because the places like California, and, and I think they may have changed their strategy, but they had, basically you could take courses in Spanish for way too long. What a surprise that they can't read in English, children that came from Mexico or some other, or Vietnam or some other place without the infrastructure around them. If you have that kind of low expectation, you're gonna get that result. So um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy of high expectations and a belief that every, every kid can learn. And then you gotta put the resources behind it. That's the other thing that's important. It can't just, this isn't Darwinian here. If, you know, if low-income kids have the greatest challenges, put more resources behind them reaching their God-given abilities. Don't excuse away why they can't learn. The fact is, and you're probably one of the best advocates of this, Jeannie, and I know you get in trouble saying it, but a lot of this whole system is based on the economic interests of the adults. And they don't like having reforms around these uh, systems because it does point out that some kids are doing well and some kids are doing horribly. And that gap needs to be resolved earlier. Instead of that, we now have, you know, well-intended people saying life's unfair, that we have systemic problems. Well, our systemic problem is our K-12 education system more than anything else. And fixing that would deal with a lot of other issues that we're now seeing each and every day in our country. You said that so well, um, and, and, and I couldn't, agree more with it. I think the systemic issues that we have are the, the foundation of that is a structurally broken K-12 system. I think your articulation about the target, you know, the, the, that people have a purpose, you know, driven life and they reach their potential and the education is really the, the foundation and set in high expectations. I mean, I, I just think, I hope everybody just listened to that because it was so, so dead on. I don't want to be negative, and I do want to kind of jump on though the issue of the structural incentives of you know of, of why it hasn't been fixed. You obviously you know showed in, in Florida how you could take um, students of of every um, background and show dramatic progress. How do we? What I mean? So we we, we talk about the struggle. I mean, how would you fix it? How can we fix it? Because honestly, I think our society can't survive. And it's you look at all the issues that exist. Well, I think the base. I think the foundation of that is a is an unequal and and underachieving 
education system? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It, and it's and look, Florida has challenges. We haven't had the same zeal for constantly challenging the system. This is this is a lifetime effort. This isn't like a eight year effort as governor. This is something that if you the minute you don't raise the bar, the minute you aren't moving forward, atrophy sets in. And we have a little bit of that in Florida right now that uh, concerns me. I, ultimately, we need to get to a system, and this is hard to do because accountability is the catalyst for a lot of these improvements. And it's hard to have an accountability system that I will describe to you right now, where every child learns at their own pace to their maximum ability. And if they master the material, they move on you know, to the next building block and they don't are passed along, pushed along until they master it. You know, the, the, this whole social, you know, calendar year being the driver of learning is, is really incorrect. Some kids could learn at a faster pace. They should be in a classroom setting with their peers being able to take on more challenging work. Other kids struggle and are left to struggle. And so you have, in most places, you have students graduating from high school with ninth grade level reading and math aptitudes. And you have other kids who could be taking on college work that are held back. So ultimate, you know, systems that are designed around customizing the learning experience for each child have to be created. They exist, but they're not scaled yet. And, and frankly, when they're scaled, then you have to have an account assessment system to measure, you know, how this works. And that's hard. That's, that's, that hasn't been totally figured out, but I think that's where we need to go. Ultimately, I'd also say, that educators, policymakers need to look at what the world looks like in 2031 or 2033. A kid in kindergarten today, she's, she's starting off on her journey and in 12 years time, she's gonna graduate if we still have 12th grade. Uh, and what, what are the skills that would be essential for her to be successful and what are, the, what are, what are her options gonna be? My guess is computer science, having some understanding of that might be more important than, than algebra two, just to throw it out there. Or there's a lot of things that we need to you know, be, be thinking about in the future. And our K-12 system is designed for another space and time. It's designed for something 50 years ago. Our calendar was designed for even 100 years ago. And so asking these, these folks, who like this system to be, I mean, again, not every person in the system's this way, but the system itself is optimizes the economic interest of the broadest number of adults in the system. It isn't designed, it's not the proper governance for this 21st century system I'm trying to describe that hasn't yet been created. Yeah. I do think I do think charter schools and, and parental choice would be the catalyst to accelerate this though. Yeah. And what's remarkable is you mentioned your being Secretary of Commerce and wanting to be part of education. You, you got turned on to education because businesses were talking about we need good, you know, we need productive workers. We need well-educated students coming out of schools. And, and yet this whole notion of going to 12th grade and 11th grade and not automatically being able to accumulate your associates or the next level of credentials um, I mean, in the innovation world and the ed tech world, there are all these badging and credentials, and you've got two years and four years that are now being added on to high schools. You know, Doral College is working right in your backyard with Academica schools on creating their own kind of bridge between high school and college. There are so many things like that, but it's still the 
exception, not the norm. Yeah. No, I think I, I read a study a couple of years ago that said that 25% of all juniors are capable of taking college level work. And I think three or 4% do. So you could envision a, a strategy that could accelerate that. And in places that Florida's a place like that and other states are investing in dual enrollment, AP, IB, and uh, career readiness type programs that are embedded in the, the K-12 experience. All that stuff's good. The question is, how do you scale it? It should be the norm, as you said, rather than the exception. And that's the problem with monopolies. <laughs> that's, the, that's the rub of this is that you have, you have policymakers that implement this. The legislature sometimes funds it. You have philanthropy doing great work. But it's always on the margins until we open up our system to allow it to be much more dynamic and open. And I, all I know is monopolies don't go quietly into the night. They just don't. They don't say, decide, you know, tomorrow if there was a consensus and there was truth serum and all the people involved in the K-12 system would admit that it's not working, that maybe we could do something better. They're not going to give this up. Right. 13,000 government-run, highly unionized, politicized monopolies have great people inside of them, but the system itself isn't going to change unless... People decide this is enough. Parents, I think, ultimately are going to have to say, I, I want something different. And maybe maybe the pandemic helps to, to bring a little clarity to that because people saw it firsthand that um, some of these well-funded school districts didn't even open or barely open. Amazing. Um, whereas lower, you know, like parochial schools open, charter schools open, um, the Dade County schools open. Like, and we have, you know, we have infections here. We have, we have COVID. We, we have a lot of it, in fact. But schools were safe. And there was a bias towards action, thanks to Governor uh, DeSantis. If, if, if the governor didn't, like, intervene, who knows? Maybe, maybe we would have fallen prey to this attitude that um, don't open, life's not fair. I don't well, know. I, I, I mean, it's kind of a scary thing. Well, the study, I mean, McKenzie just came out with a study showing how the average student lost three months in math and a, a one and a half months in um, reading. And you, you, you look at how the, it works when you get behind, you stay behind. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable that even the pandemic became political. I mean, how do you look at the, how do we fix this? I mean, in my view, things have never been so toxic as it relates to kind of the political yeah. um, situation. And yet something like education, how does that, be, I mean, the idea that we're going to do that to children, you know, I mean, it just strikes me as indefensible, yet, you know, <laughs> the, you know, nobody's listening. It's us versus them. Nobody's focused on how, how, do, we, how do we actually change this? And I'd I just be curious to, you know, if... Yeah, I, look, it, it's sad because um, I don't want to, um, yes, I will, I'll mention President Trump. If President Trump said wear a mask, uh, we're going to have a vaccine done. We're going to do it at warp speed. We're going to do something no one's ever done before. We're Americans, damn it. Uh, we'll get through this together. I care about the fact that you're just, you know, your kids can't go to school. We're going to get the schools open. And if he had a constant message saying that, A, he had been reelected <laughs> without a doubt. And B, uh, I think some of the partisanship would have subsided. Those on the other side would look foolish if it wasn't for the fact that they were posting up against a guy who kind of created doubt about vaccines, had weird theories and all that stuff. So public leadership matters, particularly in an emergency. And you can see governors that did it right. 
mean, I'm a big fan of Ron DeSantis's for this reason. I think he, you know, he may be a little more confrontational than I was. Okay, fine. But he, he was data driven on these. He still is. He, he has total command of the facts. He wasn't falling prey to the political science of the moment, you know, that may not have been po- and now it's popular, but back then it wasn't. He took some big political risks to do what he thought was right. And I think Florida's much better off now than other states that are still in lockdown. I mean, California has the lowest infection rates in the country now. I'm a nerd about this stuff, kind of obsessed about infection rates per 100,000 population. They're at two. The national average is now like 30 or 25, something like that. Florida's a little above the national average. Michigan is in the 80s. And California has none, but yet you can't go out to eat. You can't, I mean, the lockdown is crazy. And they're talking about schools maybe not even opening in the fall. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, declare victory, give people a positive message, ask people to care about their fellow citizens, their neighbors, and let's get back to working. Let's get back to, because the social costs, the mental health costs, uh, the, the family costs of being quarantined, and the loss of jobs now that could be permanent if it continues on is so devastating uh, and so tragic and could be avoided. So, yeah, I, we know. I mean, I, I know six um, young people that either have overdosed or committed suicide during this because of the mental health issues. It's, I mean, and, and, uh, and that's just you look at the data on that, and it's. I think we're just starting to see the see the the reality of all this. Yeah, and, and Michael, your point is a good one, which is. Any, whenever something gets hyper politicized, um, all of the, you know, it's them or us, red, blue, um, shut down, not shut down, mask, no mask, all this simple talk means that people suffer. And that's the tragedy of this is when we're, we, you know, we politicize this and it's kind of the talk of the cable news deals. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, real people are really hurting and, um, and even the most um, balanced or let's say, um, you know, I don't know, less troubled, least troubled. It's hard to deal with isolation. It's hard to have your whole lives change. You can't go see family. You can't go see friends. So imagine people who have, um, you know, compounding issues or just stressed out by life, which is most of us these days. Yeah, I'm, I, I took my granddaughter. I uh, I played a letter play. I asked if she, I didn't, I'm not in charge of her playing hooky or not, but we played hooky uh, yesterday to watch the Baltimore Orioles get beat three, nothing by the Miami Marlins a one o'clock Wednesday game. Uh, it's the only time I could take her during the weekday. And I'm, you know, we were talking, I'm thinking, gosh, here's this little nine-year-old creek, beautiful, smart creature. She's, you know, got a great family taking care of her. She reads at a, like a 10th grade level. I mean, she's really smart. But what, you know, what's it like to be a nine-year-old going through this year? No friends. She changed schools in the middle of this. Um, You know, Zoom is going to be the means by which they learn all of the social development that is so important for a young child to be resilient because pretty soon, you know, she'll start getting attacked on the, in the digital, the digital media world and, all this isolation that takes place now with young people that they become fragile, all that stuff uh, is accelerated in a time when you're stuck at home. Now, they, she did go to school, but it's still hard. So the quicker we get beyond this, based on good public health data, the faster we'll get back to having kids 
you know, aspire to a better life and families being more optimistic. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know any reason why you wouldn't default towards opening and then pull back if it was appropriate to do so rather than the other way around. Yeah. Well, and then and then I sit there and I wonder, uh, such a great point, Governor. And then I sit there and I wonder, you know, we have all these, um, you know, we're closing people out of life in places that the science doesn't doesn't make it up. Is that why we've all of a sudden got this extreme cancel culture and woke politics are on the rise? I mean, is there is there in your estimate, first of all, what do you think of it all? I mean, how do you what are the consequences of this kind of behavior? But it's getting extreme. I mean, there's a school, Thomas Jefferson, which is a very high performing school here in Alexandria, Virginia, where black and brown and white parents are getting together saying, we're not going to put our kids through some litmus test history. They're getting rid of all real history there and people are livid. And so it's like now people are just spending time making stuff up. I mean, what 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 are, what are the consequences of that? And maybe you agree with it. I don't know. Maybe you don't. No, I don't. I don't agree with it. I, I do think that. Um, we should we should teach our history in a way that that uh, warts and all. Um, but to suggest that the American experience is is one that's not worthy of admiration uh, is foolhardy. I mean, millions and millions of people outside our country emulate the American system and emulate the American ideal because they know it's far better than what they had. Um, and for us to, you know, to not, not believe in American exceptionalism and then strive to improve the places that need improvement um, means we're just gonna be lemmings, just following kind of what's, you know, whatever, whatever the common culture is uh, that defines us now. I think it's bad. And by the way, this infection is on the left and right, which is really remarkable. Um, I'm a conservative, you know, and it, it troubles me that we wanna cancel people that don't agree with us. Uh, just as much as the left tries to cancel people that have my view. I was a professor of practice at University of Pennsylvania, presidential professor of practice at Penn. You say that five times. And I had a great experience in, in my job uh, until the till COVID closed the school down for an entire year. My job was to be on campus and talk like a conservative used to talk, I guess, I don't know, just to be there so that students could experience another view. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I got paid to do something that is so odd for me to think that that actually, and, but, but President Gutman was correct. You can easily lose control of a university if you don't allow for a free flow of thought. And what happens is if you don't allow that free flow of thought, then people, begin to think that you're the enemy if you disagree with them. Right. Well, and someone that may have a different view. It's it's a little dangerous right now. And and the way to resolve it is to do it probably from the bottom up, not worried about what's going on in DC. Well, there's 4,000 universities and one point of view. Uh, and that's that's a problem. So I'm glad the University of Pennsylvania. Well, there's Ave Maria. We've got Ave Maria on our team in uh, Hillsdale, I guess. There's yeah. <laughs> Grove City. Now, those are all the, uh, I, I probably could name four or five if you gave me another 30 minutes. <laughs> but you need 30 minutes. Um, so what's in the future for Jeb Bush? I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited to be spending the night with my wife every night. I'm uh, happy to be a grandfather because I love seeing these kids grow uh, into a world that should be really exciting. 
I'm, I love mentoring uh, people that aspire to public service. I'm not going to be a candidate for anything. Uh, I'll help my son. If he wants me to support his opponent, I'll do that. He's running for attorney general in all likelihood. He might not, but he's considering it for sure. He's a statewide elected official. And I'm, you know, I have a thriving business that's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a blast. So life's good. It's, it really is great. And I'm living in a phenomenal place. Miami's a great place to live. You're, you're a perfect paradigm for In Piazza, Jeb, because the, we named it In Piazza because we are emulating and wanting to encourage what happened in the piazzas of old, the original town squares where people came together and they just talked and they learned what different people were like and they learned what was going on in your in your world and they built community. And um, it sounds like you've got your arms, hands and legs in uh, community in a whole bunch of different ways. And we're so grateful to you for that and for your witness and for um, sharing with us today um, what it looks like for you and giving us great encouraging points that we can go off of. So um, as we like to say in in Piazza, uh, ci vediamo. And ciao. Ciao. (laughs) Thank you guys. Come and visit. We absolutely will. Thanks again. Take care. In La Piazza. Our guest has been Governor Jeb Bush. We're so excited to have had him with us today on In Piazza. Uh, Michael, uh, what was your uh, what was your feeling about uh, the governor? What was it? What was surprised you? What was most interesting? Well, it's just so refreshing to have such a thoughtful uh, person that has got such deep experience and and so um, wise, just in terms of looking at the different things that are going on and how you can address it you know, head on without being offensive. I mean, he's he's uh, again. I just. Um, you know, we need more leaders like that in the public discussion, for sure. So thoughtful when he said, you know, millions of people are trying to come here because of the American experience and to suggest uh, that it's not worth um, emulating and it wasn't what it what it really was is uh, it's really it's really astounding. Well, most countries build walls to keep their people in. Right. <laughs> and, and and again, America, you know, when we lose the the reality that this is the most exceptional country that's ever existed, far from perfect, always needs improvement, and that's been part of the American story. But to lose that um, that 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 acknowledgement, I think, is very um, harmful for our society, for civilization, and I think we need to be able to talk about that in an open. Um, respectful way. Yeah, we need more people like Governor Bush to um, say precisely what he said, which is left or right, we should be welcoming other points of view. We should be engaging in the debate. That was what higher education was supposed to be about, right? And that is what our um, our journals out there, our media should be encouraging, um, and it's what we should be doing. And it's just so interesting to see someone, um, and so fortunate in a way in our lifetime to have somebody like that that we can talk to and read about and read from uh, because we do need, I think it's a statesman. I don't think it's an overstretch to say he's a statesman. He's had a, um, a very... A strong career. He's accomplished a lot, and yet he didn't just go into the sun or sitting back and having people praise him. He's got he's rolling his sleeves up, like reading policy and working at his uh, education think tank, Excel and Ed. Yeah, no, his 
Look, we are very blessed to have Jeb Bush um, as, as, a, as, a, as a public figure and a, now a private citizen. And we just need more people to rise up to kind of fill the needs that, are, that exist today, which are, which are plenty. Well, on in Piazza, let's make sure we will have lots more people uh, who bring uh, really interesting, diverse, and thoughtful points of view. Um, and until next time. Ciao. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcasts. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza. Ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moll. Ciao.